Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's episode, Pete Buttigieg sits down with reporter Megan Messerly to talk about his campaign in Nevada, where he stands on Medicare for All, and more, including what kind of casino game he would be. After that, I chat with intern Mark Hernandez about his story on a veterans court in Reno and what it's doing to help vets get their lives back on track. Then John tells me about two new movies he saw last week, Zombieland 2 and Hustlers. But first, let's hear a few indie stories that were broadcast this week by our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. From reporter Megan Messerly, the city of San Francisco has blacklisted Nevada for its restrictive abortion policies, banning city-funded travel and new contracts with businesses in Nevada starting in the new year. Nevada earned a place on the blacklist because state law only allows abortion in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, unless the mother's life or health is in danger, instead of allowing them until the fetus is considered viable, a similar but slightly looser standard. San Francisco's decision to blacklist the state of Nevada comes just a few months after the democratically controlled legislature and governor created a new law, nicknamed the Trust Nevada Women Act, that removed long-standing criminal penalties on abortions. It also removed requirements that doctors ask a woman's age, marital status, and explain to her the emotional implications of having an abortion before performing the procedure. The move didn't go far enough for San Francisco, though which lumped Nevada in with 21 other states, including Alabama, which passed a near-total ban on abortions earlier this year, and Georgia, which approved a so-called fetal heartbeat law that essentially bans abortion after six weeks. From reporter Riley Snyder, former FBI Director James Comey's visit to UNLV last month for a moderated discussion with former Governor Brian Sandoval, a book signing and dinner with up to two dozen VIPs, cost the university's law school $54,000. According to records obtained by the Nevada Independent, the former FBI director's September 24th visit to UNLV cost the university's law school a pretty penny, but a spokeswoman for the school said that the costs were paid by a donor and that Comey reduced his normal speaking fee for the event. Per the contract, the $54,000 fee included transportation to and from the airport, accommodations at both the Bellagio and at the university for the event, and other meetings, which ran for nearly six hours. In addition to the publicized 90-minute moderated discussion with Sandoval and book signing, Comey was also contractually obligated to hold an informal meet-and-greet with 10 to 12 community members with candid photos taken. Although the university states that the speaking fee was paid for through charitable donations, the university declined to identify the donors under a state law that exempts university foundations from portions of public record law. I wanted to start off, first of all, thank you for coming and joining us on the podcast. You're our first presidential candidate on the podcast, so we appreciate that. You're also the first candidate to officially RSVP for our Indie Forum, so we're really excited about that. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, and your staff was noting to me before you got here that you were the first to file in Nevada, so there's just been a bunch of firsts for you here in the state. So (laughs) I wanted to start off, though, talking a little bit about something that came up uh, in last week's debate, Medicare for All. Obviously, you were pressing Senator Elizabeth Warren fairly hard on the issue. Um, you know, you've released your Medicare for all who want it plan. I want to talk a little bit about the cost itch issue, which you were pressing her on. But before we get to that, there's been a tweet of yours from uh, 2018 that's been circulating around Twitter, and a lot of folks have been talking about it. Um, I wanted to read it for our listeners in case they're not familiar. But in it, you say, I, Pete Buttigieg, politician, do henceforth and forthwith declare most affirmatively and undubitably unto the ages that I do favor Medicare for all, as I do favor any measure that would help 
get all Americans covered. So what changed? Nothing. Well, first of all, uh, uh, as you can tell from the tone, I was yes. uh, <laughs> in kind of a, a, a fun uh, exchange with somebody on Twitter. But look, only in the last few months did it become the case that Medicare for all was defined by politicians to mean ending private insurance. And I've never believed that that's the right pathway. I still think that we should move toward an environment of Medicare for all. But the reason I insist on it being what, what I call Medicare for all who want it is I think that we should do this without canceling people's private plans. The way I see it is we should have some humility built into our policy. And if uh, folks like me are right that this public alternative we create, this Medicare that you can buy into if you want it, if folks like me are right that that's going to be the right answer for most Americans, most Americans are going to choose it, and it will become the only provider or the only uh, insurance option that most people use. If for some reason people want to stick with what they've got and this public alternative is not preferred for them, well, then we're going to be really glad we didn't force it on anybody. So uh, no matter how you cut it, I think the best approach is to make this Medicare option available to everybody, but not command everybody to adopt it, especially I'm thinking of folks like the culinary workers right here in Nevada. Uh, There are a lot of labor union members who have negotiated very good health plans that are part of their compensation. And I don't think they want to be forced into a plan they don't know before before they have a chance to actually see the difference and decide for themselves. I trust people to decide what the best plan is for them. Right. And I think you bring up an interesting point with the unions, right, with the culinary union here. Um, You know, I've talked to them as well, and they've made that same point. They've been negotiating for this plan over so many bargaining cycles. They don't want to see that plan just go away. Uh, You bring up an interesting point, though, at at, at the beginning there. You you were mentioning that Medicare for all has come to mean entirely abolishing private Mm -hmm. insurance. You know, in other countries, though, I'm thinking about in in Canada, right, they don't have pharmacy benefits outside of the hospital as part of their plans, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, All pharmacy care has to be covered under separate plan. And unions have plans that can include benefits like that and other health benefits that aren't covered under their Medicare system. In the UK, they have uh, private plans on top of their health insurance, right, that, right. that can exist on top of the system. So, I mean, is there room for a system like that to function here in the United States? Well, I think different countries have different systems. And out, what we know about our system is it's got to change. It doesn't mean that a Canadian or British or German approach is going to work in the United States. It does mean we have to insist that the public sector step up and deliver more. And that's the idea of Medicare for all who want it. What I'm proposing represents the biggest step forward in healthcare in this country since Medicare itself was created in the 60s. It is a big leap, and it's going to be challenging. Uh, But it's one more reason why I think we should uh, make sure that we set it up in a way that honors choice, and by the way, also a way that is paid for, uh, versus trying to throw a switch in four years or less and just convert the entire thing and expect that to work out. I think that's an interesting point, too, that you bring up, the, the idea of how you're going to pay for it, right? And this is something that, that you were criticizing Senator Warren's proposal for because unlike Senator Bernie Sanders, who's released this sort of long list of the different ways that he believes this can be paid for, she hasn't come out really and publicly talked about that as much, though you know, I understand that she's supposed to release some sort of plan sometime soon. But thinking about the way, and let's, let's use the, the argument that Bernie Sanders has made, saying that, that the goal here is that, okay, taxes may go up on folks, but net cost when you take into consideration the deductibles and the copays and the premiums, right? The premiums that you're paying as an employee as that are coming out of your paycheck and what your employer is paying. And those could be wages that would otherwise be going to you, but they're spending on paying for your health benefits, that all of that money has to be taken into account, right? So why 
why does the math not work out there? I mean, is that... Well, the problem is it literally doesn't add up. So uh, I get the idea. I mean, what they're saying, what what he's saying, and what she won't say out loud, but I, I think we all understand her to be saying, is this. Your taxes go up, but your premiums and all that go down by more, and you're up on the deal. The problem is if you actually run the numbers on what he's doing, even by the most generous estimates, there's still an unexplained gap of trillions of dollars. And uh, we haven't heard how that's supposed to be filled. These taxes that are being proposed seem like they're being spent over and over again on different proposals at, at different moments. And one of the commitments that I'm making in our campaign is that the the total of all of the things that I propose, uh, not just in healthcare but across the board, uh, there will always be a proposal on how to pay for it too. So that uh, everything we do all together, uh, if we achieve every single thing I'm promising in this campaign, we'll either reduce the deficit or at worst, uh, leave it the same. Talking about you know how, how you're going to pay for this, right? Um, Medicare for all who want it. My, my understanding of your plan is that the goal is to kind of transition the existing subsidy system from the Affordable Care Act to help folks pay for those um, government plans. Is that is that basically the effectively goal? yes? Yeah. So for example, uh, we want to make sure that premiums are never out of reach, and we'll cap the premium cost at 8.5 percent of your income, and you'll continue to see a subsidized model so that low-income patients never find that they're unable to get care uh, through this Medicare for All Who Wanted plan just because of their income. So what's the difference for folks that are looking at this and saying, okay, well, under Medicare for All, the the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren model, you know, I'm going to pay my taxes, but everything is covered, right? I don't pay any out of pocket for my hospital visits. I'm not paying my premiums. Um, I mean, what do you say to a person like that who says, well, why would I want a Medicare for All who want it plan when I still have to pay some sort of a premium, right? I still have to, you know, pay copays and deductibles and things of that nature. I mean, what what are they going to get out of that kind of a plan that they're not getting out of their existing plan. Well, I believe it's going to be better than most existing plans, but this is kind of the point. Uh, I'm going to put it to the test. And instead of telling you, come on this plan and you're going to have it and you're going to like it, uh, whether you want to or not, I'm saying we're going to create this because of the scale, because of the risk pooling, and because of the negotiating power of Medicare. I believe it will be extremely competitive and maybe even better than any plan out there. But I'm not going to assume that's going to be true. We're going to go out there and show it and leave the choice to you. I guess that's the biggest difference, is trusting individuals to make the right health decision for them rather than telling them what's good for them from Washington. And do you see a difference between, I mean, asking someone to pay a premium and asking someone to pay a tax? I mean, aren't you just paying the government money either way you put it? Yeah, I think in the end, the the real question here is how do we make sure that you get covered and how do we make sure that you get covered in a way that is affordable? And uh, if uh, if you're low income, that that's no barrier. There are a lot of different ways to do it. My approach is just one that also makes sure that you have choice. And that's what most Americans, including most Democrats, want. And I think we should honor the wishes of most uh, Americans and most Democrats on this central issue of the the Democratic primary, and I think of the election. I'm going to transition to another topic, so don't spend the entire podcast talking about Medicare for All, though I know it's it's obviously a, a topic that you've been keeping a close mm-hmm. eye on. But the issue of, of, of big tech is one that's been in the news a lot lately, and I know our Attorney General here, Aaron Ford, uh, just joined in on that investigation with 46 other attorneys general um, looking into antitrust allegations against um, Facebook. 
also came out yesterday, a Bloomberg report that Mark Zuckerberg personally recommended a couple campaign staffers who you hired. And that's sort of brought up this question of, you know, are you too close? Are you too cozy with big tech, especially when some of your competitors in this race have been going very hard um, against them and wanting to to break up Facebook and, and, and other tech conglomerates? I mean, do you think you're too cozy with big tech? No. And I actually agree that tech has too much power right now. Uh, I think that we need to investigate these companies that have acquired, in many cases, their competitors or made acquisitions that have made them grow so big that it's creating a monopoly problem. I think there's another issue around data security and data privacy, and I've proposed that we set up a strong national law on data. Uh, so, uh, you know, what we've got to do here is, is across society, make sure that no one company, no one person has this kind of power. And that's going to be particularly important as we know that in the future, uh, the reliance on tech is only going to increase. I also think that, that Facebook made a terrible decision when they said that they're not going to accept any responsibility for whether the ads that are put on their platform by politicians are actually true. We wouldn't accept that from a TV station. We wouldn't accept that from a radio station. We shouldn't accept that from an online platform either. You don't support breaking up big tech companies, though, like Facebook, correct? Well, we probably there's a good chance that they will be broken up uh, under my administration. What I don't support is, as a candidate, as a politician, choosing a company and saying, I, I declare this company is going to be broken up because there are there's due process here. There are investigative and legal processes going on right now. But I do believe that regulators and certainly the FTC should be empowered to block and, if necessary, reverse some of these, accusation, uh, these uh, acquisitions that went on. And what would you say to folks who who did see that Bloomberg report yesterday, right, and are saying, you know, this is you know kind of strange. I have some concerns about Facebook. It, it does feel like there's a close relationship here. What would you say to folks who feel concerned about that? Well, we got thousands of resumes uh, for from hundreds of people who were sending long names of Democrats that they knew who were interested in being on my campaign. It doesn't exactly amount to a close relationship. And, you know, we're proud of the staff that we have, and, and there are people who share our values. And the fact that one or two of those resumes came from somebody who's high profile in the tech industry uh, doesn't really tell you nearly as much about what I'm going to do on tech as my actual tech policy does, which I'm happy to describe to anybody. Sure. Weren't you also the 257th Facebook member? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I remember when Facebook, you know, I was on campus when that stuff was getting started. And, and uh, uh, you know, I remember when, when it was first, it, it seemed like just this quirky thing on campus that somebody was creating. Uh, and it has now grown into something that I think needs to be regulated, needs to be managed because we've seen all the impacts that it can have on society. But yeah, I remember the atmosphere when I think people still treated the internet like this delicate thing that you had to just leave alone, don't regulate it because nobody knows where it's going anyway. And now we've seen just how much money, just how much power can accumulate on these platforms and it's why they need to be regulated. There was a New York Times article that came out this morning talking about, you know, the state of the race and, and was talking to a lot of uh, Democratic establishment types, you know, just looking at the field of cam- candidates and the way things are, you know, a couple months now um, out from Iowa. And one of the things they were saying is it seemed like there was a sense that folks were concerned about Joe Biden, both in terms of his fundraising numbers and his debate performance and wondering if he had the energy to carry through. And, you know, the article was kind of talking about 
people saying, well, maybe Hillary Clinton should get in the race or maybe Michael Bloomberg should get in the race, right? Speculating that, you know, there should be a sort of more moderate option to maybe an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders type. Does that concern you that there are folks out there looking at this saying we need another sort of moderate type, a sort of backup (laughs) option to Joe Biden when you've kind of positioned yourself in that lane, have you not? Yeah, and this happens every four years. There's a certain season where people get get anxious in this way. But I would just say that uh, whatever problems there are in the Democratic Party right now, a shortage of people running for president on the Democratic side is not our problem. We've got more than enough candidates. And the proposition I'm laying out there is, look, if you want the leftmost possible candidate, you've got your choice. And if you want the candidate who spent the most years in Washington under their belt, you've got your choice. I think most people are looking for something else, and that's where I come in. I could be your candidate if you're looking for something else. The article, too, the the way it sort of framed it was, okay, there's, you know, Joe Biden. We're not sure about him. There's Elizabeth Warren. Maybe she's a little bit too to the left. And the the criticism it had of you was, oh, oh, Pete Buttigieg, you know, maybe he appeals a little bit too much to white voters, but can he expand his base? And, you know, whether whether that's true or not, there must be a perception out there, right, that there's a certain kind of Buttigieg voter. So what, I mean, what do you need to do to prove that you are a candidate that can appeal to a a diverse cross-section of voters? Well, it's one of the reasons you see us engaging so much in states with with more diverse voting bases. Uh, So uh, we'll be here in Nevada a lot. We'll be in South Carolina a lot. And nationally, we're bringing a message that speaks to voters where they are, uh, including our Douglas plan on dismantling systemic racism, which I believe is the most comprehensive plan any candidates yet put forward in this race uh, on the subject of of race and and what America needs to do to move forward. Uh, It's why we're talking about the way that policy proposals from what we got to do to empower labor and and, uh, uh, and unions and, and boost unionization to things like the minimum wage are going to disproportionately impact and benefit Americans of color. This is a really important time to make sure that we're conveying what it is that, that we have to offer, how people's lives would be different if I'm president versus my competitors. We get a fantastic response everywhere I go with this message, but my job is to take it to as many places as possible, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing in the weeks and months ahead. I wanted to ask you, you've ramped up your campaign here in Nevada a lot in the last couple of months. I was checking the calendar and you've been here three times in the last 30 days. I think the last time we talked in early August, you'd only been here three times total. So you've doubled that now in the last 30 days. I mean, why has Nevada become such a focus for you so recently? Well, uh, yeah, I've always been excited about Nevada. What we're finding uh, the uh, as we continue visiting is, first of all, we're getting a great response. It's very encouraging. Uh, Nevadans seem excited about what it is we have to offer. The second thing is this is a state that really seems to focus on the future. People here, I think, are looking ahead, even demographically. Uh, They say that what Las Vegas looks like today is what America will look like in the 2050s, which is when I would reach the current age of the current president. And so I think it, it, it matches very well with the message that I'm offering that starts by looking at the very near future, like what's it going to be like for this country to pick up the pieces the first day after Donald Trump leaves office, all the way through to the uh, future we're creating if we do or don't get it right on climate, uh, wages and all of these issues in front of us. So uh, Nevada feels like our kind of state. And uh, we've got a fantastic team on the ground, great leadership. Uh, uh, I think uh, the most organizers and, and offices, perhaps of any of my competitors here in state, and think this could be th- this first in the in the West Caucus, uh, is a great place to capture what we hope will already be good momentum coming out of other early states and catapult us to be in a great position for the contests ahead. 
So I know we're almost out of time. So I just wanted to, we're asking all of our candidates who come on this podcast three fun questions. So okay. uh, the first one's a test, and then the last two are just fun questions. But uh, the first one is we would like you to please name in order the first four early nominating states, which I know seems like an easy question. <laughs> wow. All right. But is actually hard for a lot of folks. <laughs> really? Interesting. <laughs> yes. Well, you got the Iowa caucus, the Nevada primary, uh, the New Hampshire primary right yes. around the corner, then back here in Nevada for the caucus, yes. and then over to South Carolina for the primary. Perfect. Good How'd job. You, you did it. You got <laughs> it. Um, you should tell that to some pollsters who have not it's been true. polling still Nevada. Do you see the screens right. on the on the TV news channels and it's always <laughs> Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I've noticed. Nevada's not there. So we're just, we just like to remind <laughs> folks, you know. Uh, the second one, if you were a casino game, which game would you be? Ooh. You don't seem like a gambling man. Wow. Uh, furled what makes you say that? Well, your brow just furled there when I asked you that <laughs> no, question. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> thinking about the question. I don't know. I'd like to think I'd be one of those really fun slot machines but maybe yeah. i'd be something more uh uh more reliable and methodical like a roulette table yeah I okay i like that i like that answer um and then the last one what's your favorite movie with a scene that takes place in nevada oh interesting um well the hangover just came on when i was uh channel surfing so yes. i'm gonna go i'm not certain that's my favorite right. but it's the first one to come to mind <laughs> for better or for worse that's it, it probably a lot of a folks lot of first people, to come so to mind. yeah <laughs> i think that's a fair answer well we'll leave it there but thank you so much for joining actually, us actually wait a minute oh. top gun that's that's up here right top gun that's a good question did top gun the real top gun is at fallon but uh that's true i don't know I don't if know. the original top gun takes place all right if so then i'll amend my answer to that but thank you so much for joining us on on the podcast we appreciate it thanks thanks All right. How's it going, Mark? We've met up to talk about your story on veteran courts. Uh, you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the veterans court here in Reno is uh, just finished its first year. And this is something that was put forth thanks to a statute in the legislature back in 2009. And this is the first year that it's been successful in Reno. And out of the 30 participants, four people were able to graduate. And the big thing with their program is that once the veterans graduate, they actually get their records, charges dismissed, and their records sealed so that they actually have a good second start. Are these um, veterans that have done like felonies or is this just misdemeanors? This is all misdemeanor level, like anything under a fine of like $1,000. This is mostly possession-related substance abuse. That's And that's why this court is also different because it's not just punitive, it's more rehabilitation-centered. Okay. So they want to help these people before they get back out there. And th- this is the first year that it's happened in Reno. Has this been a thing in Vegas or any, or any other place? It exists down in Vegas, and there's another one in Henderson as well. Have other states seen success with, with courts like these? Yes, there are. I actually couldn't tell you how many states, but this is nationally, this is a thing that's been progressing quite steadily in the last 10 years. And they've had a lot of success because so many people who go into these courts, a very small percentage are actually repeat offenders. Everybody else tends to be actually rehabilitated. These courts, can you explain to me, does it look like a regular courtroom and it's just for veterans? Is that what's going on? Well, we were able to go to the graduation, which was just in one of the courtrooms, but they actually have an entire courtroom just set up for them, which is the judicial second district court here in Reno. And what they do is the people who are participating do three check-ins a week, including classes. So it's a whole court system, but also kind of like a communal setting where both the prosecutor and the defense attorney work together to try to help reduce sentences or just push them through the process legally, but also help them. 
So with, with courts like these, they only serve the veterans in the community? This is for veterans and active service members. And is, do they see higher crime rates and like petty crime rates, like these under $1,000 fines with veterans? They actually have more problems when it comes to substance abuse, mental health, suicide. But these all always go hand in hand with especially the smaller crimes of carrying or possession of drugs. That's okay. the problem. And how many people did the court see go through it this year? Uh, so four graduated this year, and they had 30 participants Okay, for this year alone. And so when you say 30 participants, there's 30 cases heard at the court with 30 different individuals? Yes. When you meet these veterans that are going through this, this veterans court, how are they responding to a court that's kind of specifically tailored towards veterans? Uh, they've been very grateful. They the One, one of the members of the um, graduating group actually decided to not do his retirement party and have this graduation as being a way to end his 20 years in service. Okay. So it's a, they take it as a very big privilege because they are given chances that you would not otherwise find in a regular court. How long, it's been going on for a year, you said? This is its first year. It just finished its first year. Are they going to continue doing? Yes. They got great positive feedback from it. A lot of people who are interested and they have a lot of volunteers and co-sponsors who help with the program. Okay. Does this cost, is this using any state funding to help with this? Um, they filled out a lot of grants trying to get this off the ground, and that's why they had to wait until this last year to get it started so that all the grant money would come in. What was some interesting stuff that you saw while reporting on this? Did you enjoy reporting on this story? Or? This was a great story. It's honestly probably one of the most uplifting stories that I've done because usually in a courtroom setting, no one's happy, only unless you magically you know, like get, a, uh, get your case thrown out. or n- None of these cases ever end well. So to see a whole group of people that are just extraordinarily motivated to help each other get out of the situation. That was amazing. And the graduation ceremony itself was very nice. It was everybody spoke who graduated. The judge was giving out certificates for every single person. And at the very end, they even uh, sang their like unofficial motto song, which is um, lean on me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it was actually a really moving moment. It was very nice to be in there. Cool. And when you talk to the the people that have gone through the court, they were, and they, do, they, do they feel like they've been rehabilitated? Yes. The one, especially, like I had said before, who skipped the graduation or skipped the retirement ceremony for the graduation party was out of the 20 years of service that he did, this one year in, his, in this court changed his life more than the 20 years of service. Wow. And he said that, so. Yeah. Is, do they feel like they weren't being helped with their addiction or, or any problems that they were having in, in normal courts and that's why they were going to the special court? Well, what happens with the Veterans Court is that they're referred to either by the public defender, the prosecutor, the judge. People have to tell them that this would be a great candidate. But what they find out is this court is not just the legal proceedings. It's also finding ways to get uh, VA benefits or finding ways to get new therapy or rehabilitation programs with one of the graduate lost her animal um, in this time. So she was able to get um, a dog out of the SPCA as a rehabilitation dog, but it's also like, you know, the love of her life. So it is a, like, an, it's all an encompassing way of uh, approaching the problem. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for reporting on this story, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Right, cool, John. So this is the last segment of the podcast, and as as uh, you have wanted, you've wanted a movie review segment for a while. You've got to do one already, but you said you saw two movies last weekend. You want to tell me what those were? Let's make sure that we don't tell Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor, that we're doing this, Joey. We know she's opposed to my movie reviews. That's right. I think I it's, your, it's, your, it's your opinions that she's opposed to, not your reviews. 
I, I think it might be a little of both, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, I saw two movies. I saw the Zombieland sequel, and I saw Hustlers, which is the, the uh, movie about strippers who decide to scheme and drug men. It's based on a true story with Jennifer Lopez. Which one did you like more? You know, I liked them both. I think I think I probably liked uh, Zombieland. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw it. Did you see the original, Joey? I, I've seen the original, but I have not seen the sequel. I also haven't seen Hustlers. Okay. The original, I thought, was actually very clever and funny and over the top. And I happen to like all, you know, I, I, I like Woody Harrelson. I like Emma Stone. Uh, Amanda Breslin, uh, I've liked since she was a little kid and definitely maybe, which my kid and, their, my kid and I share a lot of nice memories because it's kind of a sweet movie with Ryan Reynolds. But don't tell anybody I have a sweet side <laughs> joke. I will. Uh, this, this is just between us, everything on this Of course, podcast, of course. Right? That, that, that's what I thought. So, uh, so I, I liked the original, and and uh, I, I, I thought the, I thought that the sequel was actually very much like the original. Very cute, funny. The violence is over the top, but there was one very disturbing aspect of of the sequel, Joey, and it, it has haunted me. It's as if uh, the producers of this movie were specifically trolling me, <laughs> and what because. Was that? Rosario Dawson's character in this movie, I don't know if you know this, is from Reno, which she refers to as the biggest little city, but she keeps talking about being from Nevada. Oh, no. She's one of those. You know know how that grates on me. And so uh, I, uh, I feel that it's necessary now to disqualify her boyfriend, Cory Booker, from any standing in this state because his girlfriend cannot pronounce the name of the state correctly. I think that's only fair, don't you? I, I think I think that's how politics work. If you can't pronounce the state, you're not allowed to uh, run there. Right, and so uh, it was, I have to say, Joey, one of the highlights of my Twitter life that I put out a tweet to this effect, which got a, a, a lot of likes and retweets, and Rosario Dawson actually went on and like the tweet. So that shows me she has a great sense of humor. So she's aces in my book. Oh, well, that's good. All right. Well, you know, we're sorry to say that Cory Booker will no longer be running in the state, but at least Rosario Dawson is a fan of yours. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it's, 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 it's good news. It's good news for me. Not so good news for Cory Booker, uh, whose name now cannot legally appear on the ballot. Because, exactly. <laughs> uh, because of that, of that mispronunciation. And so hustlers. So, so hustlers, uh, uh, Jennifer Lopez, uh, who, in my opinion, has not been in a lot of good movies. Has never impressed me that much as an actress. Although she, she has been, she has done a couple of, of, of good things, including that movie with George Clooney that Steven Soderbergh directed. That I, I for some reason, the name uh, is 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 escaping me. And so uh, uh, she is really, is really good. At, what's that? Is it out of out sight? Of sight. That's yeah, it. Out of it. sight. Thank you. Yep. Uh, I, I believe you used the Google machine to find that, but that <laughs> I am totally fine with that. Out of Sight is a really, really good movie. People should see that if they haven't. Have you seen that movie, I Joey? I have not, but Google told me what it was. So You should definitely see that movie. It's an excellent movie. Anyhow, she plays the ringleader of these strippers in, in, in this movie, and she is a very believable character, as are most of the characters uh, in this. And it's a real slice of life. It's a true story, as I said. But Constance Wu, I think, who is is kind of the person that Jennifer Lopez gets into this scheme is even better than Jennifer Lopez. Her performance is so, so good. Uh, some people may know her from Crazy Rich Asians, which mm-hmm. was this sensation uh, either last year or earlier this year. I don't even remember. But the movie is really, really well done. And it's really believable. The motivations 
of the characters. And it does show you, I think, uh, and many women will, will be happy about this, just how dumb men can be uh, <laughs> and then falling for, for a lot of this. But I really enjoyed it. I think the acting is really superb. Uh, all the way around, and so I recommend it. All right. Well, two two movies recommended by John Ralston here on the the podcast. Go check them out if you if you want to, and hopefully, John, we can do more of these if E doesn't uh, put the end to this. <laughs> We're not telling her about it, Joey. Remember that. That's We're right. Not telling. All right. Well, have a good weekend, John. And uh, if you see any more movies, you'll let us know. I'm sure. I will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Mayor Pete for being on this week, and I'd also like to thank Mark and John for chatting with me as well. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can find us on all the podcast platforms, from Spotify to iTunes, Stitcher, and more. And keep listening as we'll have more 2020 hopefuls on the podcast moving forward. If you like the podcast and you've already left a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, you can also send me comments, criticism, and praise by emailing me at joey at com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at com. As always, our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music on Bandcamp or Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Next week.